Today on the Altco's Mainstream Podcast, we are partnering with Kaya, the leading global professional body in alternative investment credentialing programs, for a very special episode that dovetails with the release of their latest report on renewed professionalism and creating client-centered outcomes for the portfolio of the future. We're lucky enough to have Luke Ellis, the CEO of Man Group, one of the largest active investment firms in the world. Man Group manages almost $150 billion across a range of liquid and private market strategies and has the central objective to deliver alpha for clients. Speaking of alpha, Luke and I had a fascinating discussion about what it means to create alpha. Luke believes that alts are all about the return the client gets, and he and Man are focused on doing important work to ensure that the end client, the saver, is generating returns over time for the risk they are taking. Luke's background has a consistent theme of helping to make certain investment strategies and asset classes go mainstream. He was part of the early days of the development of the derivatives world at JP Morgan and was a pioneer in the hedge fund space, helping hedge fund of funds, FRM, enable hedge funds to become a mainstream part of investors' portfolios. He's since taken over the helm at Man Group for the past 12 years and has helped steer them to become one of the most important investment management firms in the world. Please enjoy this wide-ranging discussion where we talk about everything from the importance of active management to fee compression, to the importance of technology and investment management, to the impact of human behavior on financial markets, to how Ted Lasso's management style has informed how Luke thinks about building Man Group to enable clients to achieve alpha. We hope you enjoy this fun conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast, Luke. We're going Luke, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And thanks to our friends at Kaya for helping to organize this and talk about something really important, which is around renewed professionalism in the alternative space and how firms like yours, Luke at Mann, have thought about creating client-centric outcomes. But first, where I want to start is with your background. You have fascinating background. You've been in markets for quite some time, and you've been at Mann for the better part of 12 years at this point. So we'd love to hear your background and how you got here. Sure. Pleasure. Well, I sort of think of my career as having three phases. I was lucky enough to come into finance essentially right at the beginning of the swaps business. Not the beginning of derivatives. Futures have been around longer, but the early mid-80s was when swaps started. I've met all 52 people who claim they did the first swap with each other. So I wasn't there for the first swap, but I was there in the first couple of years. And that got me going into the derivatives world. And I built JP Morgan's equity derivative business for them from scratch, which was a sort of fascinating thing. And doing it at a stage where the ideas were ahead of the technology. So you actually had to have your wits about you a lot. That was the first phase of my career was really good fun until sort of the bureaucracy got too much. I'd had a fantastic boss who kept all the bureaucracy away from me. And then I didn't have the same boss and it was no fun anymore. So I left, 
didn't know what I was going to do next, but waited to see what happened. And a friend had effectively just started a fund of hedge funds business. I didn't even know what it was at the time, but we were chatting about what he was doing. He said, oh, can you come in and help me for a couple of days just while I get some stuff sorted? And I did it for 10 years off the back of going in for a couple of days, never quite stopping. And that was my first drive of making hedge funds mainstream. And certainly that firm, FRM, which is in fact now part of MAN, was very much at the forefront of hedge funds going into institutional portfolios in Europe and Asia and was very much at the forefront of pension fund investing into hedge funds. And that was great fun until I tried to convince my partner, well, I thought I had convinced my partner that the business needed to move to the next level and become part of a larger organization. He couldn't bring himself to sign the dotted line on the bit of paper. So I retired had the great good luck to be retired for sort of 2008, nine. So I, I don't have the emotional scars that many people have from the financial crisis. I did a bit of consulting, advising, helping friends with their businesses, one of which was GLG, where I knew the management quite well. And then man bid for GLG and... I thought that the opportunity to come back full time to try and I knew that the two things going together at that stage was going to be quite a big mess and the thought of turning around somebody else's mess looked fun. So the third phase of my career was at man first sorting out the mess we inherited and then building something which Touchwood is now a very successful business. That's quite a background and and seeing different aspects of market structure evolutions, the markets themselves, different products, different asset classes or sub-asset classes. What do you think you took from your experience at FRM working with investors as they thought about putting hedge funds into their portfolio? What have you now taken with you to man as you build a multi-strat comprehensive platform? I think there's a couple of key things in there. The first is a big picture thing, but it is a thing that often in the alternatives industry, people sort of forget, which is it is all about the returns that the end client gets. And certainly for a good portion of the late 90s and early 2000s, most of the hedge fund managers thought it was all about them and how much money they could make and how quickly they could become a billionaire. I don't begrudge anybody money as long as they got it because they made a lot of money for the client. But the person taking all the risk in this industry is the end client. It's the person whose actual savings that is, whether that's a saver in a pension plan or it's an individual. They're the ones taking the risk. They start with 100 and they're not that bothered about all the nuance and technicalities that we all get super obsessed about. They're like, I gave you 100 and X years later, how much more than 100 do I get back? And that bit of remembering why one does all of this and what it's for and that there is a real societal impact by doing it well or doing it badly, I think is super important. And I would say in the early days, 
I didn't really understand it. And then I had a sort of couple of transitory moments where somebody really explained it to me and I got it. Now I'm quite evangelical about explaining that to other people. The other thing is, and this is super important for the way I think about what we do and what we don't do, that the alternative space is supposed to be about alpha. And I'm quite obsessed about the thing of, look, beta is a good thing, but you can get it for nothing. The point about alternatives is to find excess return from, let's call it alpha for a simple way of describing it. And that gets you to two big things. One is you should only do the things where there actually is an alpha rather than just trying to charge alternatives fees for providing beta, which many people like to do. But it should be about alpha. And the second is when you think about asset allocation, portfolio construction, and now in the case, when I think about the portfolio of man, when you live in the traditional assets world, in the beta world, it's perfectly sensible to sit there and try and think where there'll be beta returns tomorrow, next six months, next year, next five years, whatever. And it's difficult to do, but it's perfectly sensible to try and rational to come up with a, you know, I think there'll be more beta returns in US equities than there will be in European debt and build your portfolio on that basis. On the other hand, when you live in alpha space, well, 10 years of running a fund of funds, we spend a lot of time in committee rooms trying to predict where there would be alpha by strategy type, by sector. Would there be more stock picking alpha in Japanese market neutral next year than there would be in US or would there be more mergers and therefore more event returns? My conclusion was we did 10 years of trying really hard. And if we were honest about ourselves, at best, we added zero. We did a lot of effort. Let's be nice and say we added nothing. And I realized that either you can't do it or I'm not clever enough to do it. And it slightly doesn't matter which of the two because if I'm not clever enough, you shouldn't do it. And it made me realize that in alternative space, as opposed to starting with an asset allocation and then trying to plug managers into that asset allocation to fit it, what you need to do is to look for managers with alpha. That's a high bar. And if you find managers with alpha or strategies with alpha, then you have to construct a portfolio out of them. There's no point having five people that chase the same alpha because you might as well just have one and not dilute it. You're looking for different sources of alpha, but you have to start with the alpha and then build the portfolio rather than what you do in traditional asset portfolios where you start with the portfolio and then populate. There's a lot to unpack here because this is a fascinating question about how investors should think about this. And I'll bucket it into two different categories. One is you have the institutional investors, or as you mentioned, in many respects, real money. So like pension plans, sovereigns, insurance companies, et cetera. And firms like yourself work with them. But then to your point, you also mentioned the end client, which those real money firms have the end client. It could be the police officer, the fireman, whatever. But then there's also these access platforms that are providing access to either the individual or the intermediary, the wealth manager who's enabling the end client, which equally important. Now, as you think about the mainstreaming of alts in the context of 
more people are now having access to alts and have the agency to do it themselves or invest themselves, whether it's smaller checks or larger checks in terms of the investment size they're able to invest. How do you think about what you just said around constructing a portfolio with alpha? But to do that, first, you have to look for a manager with alpha. Or do you feel that this mainstreaming of alts and these platforms, whether they be the more traditional firms, these large asset managers who are trying to create products and manufacture them themselves, or these platforms that are working with these firms to distribute those products, is that creating the environment that you say where finding these managers who have alpha and then constructing a portfolio with alpha? Absolutely think it can do that. Individuals can do it themselves or they can work with one of these platforms and the platform can do the research and it absolutely can do it. I think that doesn't mean that they will do it. And the big thing one needs to be looking at is whether it is about returns delivered to the client, to the end saver, whether that's the, I always use the primary school teacher with sort of 20 years to go to retirement because well, different people have different views about their high school teachers. Everybody remembers their primary school teachers fondly. And when you send your kids off to primary school, everyone feels fondly about your kid's primary teacher. So that's our sort of quintessential type of client we always talk about. It's the end saver. Imagine it's a primary school teacher. And the thing is, it needs to be about delivering them returns rather than about asset raising. Some of the intermediary processes that platforms now, increasingly technology platforms, are absolutely around finding best quality product and delivering it in a package that is easy to consume for the end saver. And that's a fantastic thing. I think one of the bits that I always look for, and we work with some of those people and they're very good relationships, but one of the things I always look for is, are they trying to have a menu covering all of the different versions of alternatives or are they trying to just provide product to clients to the end saver that is high quality product and that's that thing of are you starting with the portfolio and then populating it are you starting by saying i want one of all of these different things that it says on michael's list of here's the different sorts of alternatives i'm trying to fill all of those boxes or is that platform looking for the best partners to then deliver high quality content and there'll be some gaps where you can't find the particular thing you're a tech venture guy i think the further in that you get into venture tech the harder it is to get capacity in the best stuff and doing the sort of 17th best venture fund is not the same as getting the average venture fund we all know the skew is quite steep. I think people should look for the platforms where they don't worry about whether it has one of everything, worry about whether the ones it's got are very good. On that point, I think that absolutely makes sense from the end investor and client perspective. But if we go to the asset manager side and putting on the business builder hat, where as an asset manager, you have to build a business, there's multiple fee streams or revenue streams. There's management fees, there's performance fees often. And couple that with the fact that many of these asset managers are now going public and they have to be judged 
on not necessarily a long-term basis, but a quarterly basis. How do you think from a business building perspective, asset managers balance and reconcile the business building side with what you just mentioned? And it's so important, creating the right products for the end clients so that they're happy. So if you take the whole asset management industry, I think it does a pretty poor job of getting that balance right. And uh, far too much of the industry thinks only about themselves and not about the client outcomes. I think it's perfectly possible to build a very good business, only delivering the things where you really add value to clients. And so I can only look at the way we build our firm, but we don't have a long only US equity offering. It's the biggest part of the asset management industry. And we don't because we haven't been able to find a repeatable source of alpha in there. I mean, sort of anybody can punt around in large cap US stocks. It's very easy to trade them. But to generate a consistent alpha is very, very hard because the information is so freely available. So we would rather not offer something, even though it's a big market segment, in order to not offer something that's average. The thing one has to remember is, because of the competitive nature of asset management and because of the transactions costs, both explicit and implicit when you trade, the average loses money. You have to be excellent. One of our sayings is good isn't good enough. We've got to be excellent. Because if you're good in asset management, you're probably still not generating any net alpha. You might generate enough alpha to offset your costs, but you're not generating alpha for the client. So you need to be excellent as you can't do everything. I think the bit about, well, look, we're a public company and I've run a private company and a public company. And the funny thing is I spent more time on shareholder issues running a private company because everybody wants their bit and everybody argues about everything than I do on shareholder issues as a public company. But the reason asset management exists is because the stock market is not efficient or some other market, but stick with equity asset management. It exists because the stock market is not efficient. So if you let the stock market tell you how to run your business and you get obsessed about quarterly earnings and whatever, well, more for you. Every time I do an earnings release written on the top and the bottom of the page is just remember the reason we exist is because markets are inefficient. So we provide information, the share price goes up and down, often not related to the information, but that's markets, right? But the point is you shouldn't let the share price drive how you run the business. You should be doing it based on a longer-term view about what's creating value for shareholders, and that that is definitely not about quarterly earnings. When you think about that last point, creating long-term value for shareholders, how do you think about the concept of fee pressure in the asset management industry, particularly going back to what you talked about earlier, saying that you can't just be average, you have to be great, and people should be getting what they're paying for in the asset management space, which is to generate alpha. Well, I have a slightly controversial view about fees. I don't believe that fees have been under pressure and going down. As long as you talk not fees as an absolute number of basis points, but rather fees as a percentage of alpha. In my experience, depending on the quality of your alpha, clients are totally happy to pay 20 to 35% of alpha 
in fees. There are some people who make a successful business out of platforms that charge more than 50% of the alpha in fees. I happen to think the client should get the majority of the return. But the consistency of clients' willingness to pay, I don't think has changed really. What's changed over the years is clients' cynicism about whether there's any alpha. And the fact you can get beta for zero, go back 30 years ago when I started doing some of this stuff and nobody quite knew what was alpha and beta in any way. You had to pay somebody to get either beta. And so there was a sort of blurring of the thing. But if you look at life on the basis of people paying nothing for beta and depending on the quality of the alpha, 20 to 35% of alpha for the alpha, Clients are happy to pay that, and there isn't re- hasn't really been any change in that over time. The clients have learned to be cynical as to whether people do have alpha. And so there's been pressure from that point of view of prove you've got alpha. And if you're one of these people who's jobbing around without ever making any money, well, then your fees are going to zero, but they should be zero. If you're not adding any alpha and you're taking fees out, you are just a cost on society it's not a good thing it's a strong view of life sorry i got got a bit passionate there yeah no i think that that's a really important thing particularly when we're talking about this theme of focusing on client-centric outcomes putting the client first and thinking about what they need which i think we all believe is so important as alts go mainstream and more investors get access to alts and related to that point you talked a little bit about find the managers if you're a client who generate alpha and do the best job at what they do. From a business building perspective, you at Man think about, we're going to focus on the strategies we believe where we can actually generate value and alpha for clients. And we're not going to focus on those where we don't think we have an edge. You recently talked about consolidation occurring in the asset management space to some extent that may be market related given where current markets are. But also it's related to the general arc in the industry, as you say, of kind of specialization. How do you think about consolidation in the space and how should asset managers think about building their businesses to your point about focusing on where they can actually add value? And then as they think more broadly about the arc of evolution in the space, how do things play out from a consolidation perspective? Look, you can see things that don't work. And I can talk about how we think about what we do. I wouldn't try and be conceited enough to say what I think everybody should do. But the the mergers are equal for the sake of trying to prove you're a bit bigger. I'm not sure they work in any industry, but I think the maths in the asset management industry certainly show they don't work. And mergers where you haven't thought about the cultural aspects definitely don't work because... Most parts of asset management, the IP walks out of the door every night. So you better understand why they want to come to work if you want to keep the IP. So we have grown through purely organic of training up of young people and then coming up with new ideas. We've grown by hiring teams and we've grown by doing a number of acquisitions. And that criteria of is there alpha That's the number one thing to care about. It applies in all three cases. The second thing we look for is, is there a cultural fit? Do they believe in the things we believe in? And the third is not having two of the same thing. 
So you're building out the menu of choices. And you have to kiss a lot of frogs. We've looked at a lot of businesses. We've looked at a lot of things. In the fund of hedge funds world, I remember back in the mid-2000s, there'd have been a thousand fund of hedge fund businesses, maybe more. Today, there might be 20, 30, I don't know, some number like that. And we did a number of acquisitions, but overall, that sort of a thousand down to 30, I would guess 90% of the things have withered on the vine rather than been consolidated through a traditional merger. They've been consolidated because the client has redeemed from one and moved to another. And the one that gets redeemed withers on the vine. And that happens all the time in asset management. So there are less deals than people think. But there is opportunity for creating value through doing it. And I think to your other hat, this gets to one of the important things of asset management. Asset management, like any other industry, it is more and more technology is driving through the asset management industry and whether it's in the infrastructure, in the way of connecting with clients, in the way of executing trades, in the way of generating alpha, the things you can do with technology today compared to five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago are incredible. And of course, it's changing asset management, should be changing asset management significantly. We have a big bet on this. We have a big bet on using technology all the way through the stack of the business. And in that exercise, as soon as you start to have significant tech spend, you can look at any industry and see that the people who are able to invest the most money in their technology end up doing better, which means they make more money, which means they can invest more in their technology, and it creates the moat that everybody's looking for. You look at most technology-driven businesses, and they end up as being some sort of natural oligopoly, maybe even monopoly, but maybe government should do more about stopping that, but that's a different topic. And you could see that happening in asset management today, that there are a series of firms who are making very big technology investments and who are hoovering up more and more of the alpha so they perform better, they're able to go and hire better people, they get more of the alpha, they can spend more money on the technology. And if you're inside that loop, you get a positive reinforcement loop. And we think of ourselves, again, one used to talk about the hedge fund business being 10,000 firms. The reality is today, the top 100 firms dominate and within the top 100 firms, the top 10 who have really big technology spends, obviously we think us, but a Millennium, a Citadel, a D-Shore, those types of firms are hoovering up more and more of the alpha that's available and delivering to clients, but using technology to reinforce that. On that point, do you think that the correlation of these larger firms, A, expanding their product set and types of investment asset class focuses capabilities is also correlated with where they're spending money on tech and how that's creating more of a one-stop shop for investors as they think about expanding their platforms horizontally? Yeah, I think that there's 
two different bits in that. So what it's definitely doing is the technology spend enables you to get significant synergies out of putting more stuff through the platform. And so for us or the other people I talked about, if you add another 10 investment teams, you don't need to add anybody in operations or anywhere through the infrastructure stack because the technology is volume independent if you spent the right amount on it. There's a natural synergy there compared to somebody doing it themselves. You just have to retain a lot more of the fees. That is a natural benefit. So that's a big area. I think the the second thing is the more different sources of alpha you've got, the more opportunity there is to deliver solutions for clients, which give them what they want. Now, you said broadening a product set. And the interesting thing is that there are sort of two approaches. There's a number of people whose approach is to have one product with everything embedded in it, which is a very good business solution for the provider and is a good core holding in anybody's portfolio. But it's a one size fits all. It's you can have anything you want as long as it's the Model T Ford thing which definitely creates value. But I think personally that on average that the value creation through that, more of it goes to the producer than goes to the consumer. More of it goes to the manager than goes to the client. What we have is a different model where we have a lot of different product, but actually most of what we do is things where the client is picking off a menu of different things and combining them together with our guidance to create the solution that actually suits them. In order to deliver the best outcome for the client, you need to know what the client is trying to achieve and what else they've already got. Because if you find this mythical client with a big pot of capital and no investments, well, then yes, my one size fits all is the perfect answer. But of course, in the real world, A, clients have all sorts of interesting constraints, whether it's individuals or pension funds, they all have real or perceived constraints, but they also own other stuff. And so what is the right next investment depends what you already own in your portfolio. And so we have majored on providing solutions that fit clients' needs. If we look at our growth in the last five years, we've been lucky enough to basically double in the last five years. And all of that growth has come from solutions rather than standardized products. On that point, which is a really fascinating one, which is about tailoring solutions to the client's needs, how much have you focused on the application of technology to help clients understand what's in their portfolio. But that also helps you from a distribution of product perspective because you can then figure out what products off your menu should fit into their portfolio. And that may be different for different clients. So I would say we focus most on the technology solution that lets us deliver bespoke solutions without having to do a sort of unbelievably complicated hand-stitched solution. So the people producing the alpha don't have to sit there trying to remember for each individual client 
what are the constraints on who I'm allowed to trade with? What are the limits? Where, hang on, how does that solution work? That's all done by technology for them, which is where we've really majored on. We have spent quite a bit of time on the thing you're talking about of technology to enable the client to recognize what they own today and to try to think about how a solution would work for them. I would say we found it tricky to have the impact there we'd like to. What we've certainly found is if we give a client a piece of technology to do that themselves, that the thing of technology is it's only as good as the inputs and tend to get not necessarily the most useful inputs into the process, at which point the conclusions the system comes up with as recommendations is not as useful as you might think. So it's a very interesting area. It's just quite hard in something like investing where people's image about what they're doing and what they're actually doing are often not that correlated. Where do you think the next frontier for technology and its application to the asset management industry lies? Sort of everywhere. I think for a fintech guy, the good news is asset management is incredibly ripe for disruption. It's exactly right that in the broad retail mass market type of world, the distribution models using technology have enormous prospects. In the institutional world, the client side is a communication thing, which is, I'm not sure, is the most exciting part of technology. We are very, very big believers in the power of quant, so technology, to do the actual alpha generation, the actual buy and sell decisions, as well as the portfolio construction. And we do hundreds of thousands of trades without any human intervention anywhere in the process. We're a big believer in that. I'm amazed when I talk to, we look at some of those quite big asset management businesses out there, how manual their just back office processes, how they have spreadsheets managing stuff. And you sort of go, oh God, okay, that's like, should have stopped doing that 20 years ago type of thing. And that there are some solutions starting to be out there. There's obviously the big brother solution of Aladdin, which for most asset managers, I think doesn't give them the flexibility they need. So there are things being developed, but really asset management is so many of the processes in, when you look at the average asset manager are basically the same as they did in the eighties. That tells you there's lots of room. I think what you're getting at is a really interesting concept of the power of technology, both on the investing side and the operation side, can provide leverage and or returns to an asset management business. Now, there will still be humans involved in the process. And you've said, I think the quote was, which is, was quite a good one, computers don't go to drinks parties. And I think what you're referring to is the power of predictability of technology can help generate alpha, or at least generate returns in ways that maybe the unpredictability of human behavior can't. So in your mind, where's the balance of adding technology or using technology in an asset management business with leveraging using human capabilities and human behavior as well? For now, and probably for the next 
20 years, that there are a number of things that computers can't do that humans can do well. And this is a great example. So you and I talked about the sorts of questions you might ask in advance, and the conversation's gone nowhere near those questions because you're a human interviewing a human and you can move on the fly, make changes, adjust, and understand the nuance of answers. And I think it's a long time before computers can interview a CEO as well as a human can. That's one of the things where humans have an obvious advantage. On the other hand, the processing of data, computers have a massive advantage over humans. It's so many orders of magnitude now, it's sort of a bit daft. That's sort of two ends of a spectrum I talked about there, and you need to look for each piece of a process, where does it fit within that process? If it's collecting a load of price data and comparing it, computers are better at that than humans are. If it's interviewing somebody, and then as you start to get through things, you can use technology to process more and more. In the old days, the first thing a portfolio manager did when they got to the office was spend a whole load of time reading what happened yesterday and reading research reports and reading that they're just trying to consume data before they can do any sort of processing thing. What we can do today, even for the humans, is to do a lot of that processing in advance. If you've ever had to listen to an earnings call, a company earnings call, I do them. And every CEO's goal is to make it mildly boring. Well, maybe to make it very boring with a positive skew. How about that? That's sort of the goal. And if you're invested in a particular stock, as the PM, you ought to listen to that earnings call so you get the nuance and the insight. But suppose you're invested in an asset manager there's another 200 listed asset managers. If you try to listen to 200 asset managers' earnings calls, you'll go mad. Take a hell of a long time and you'll be bored. And humans are amazingly good at going along passively, pretending to listen to something without really hearing. We're amazingly good at driving down a motorway, a freeway, without remembering where we are. If it's a regular commute, you do the drive, you can't remember anything about it. But we do the drive pretty safely unless something dramatic happens. What we can do now with technology is you can have a a natural language processing system listen to all of the other earnings calls, not the one that the PM really cares about, but all the other ones in the industry, and give a sentiment score on all of those different things, give information, it might be pick whatever is the particular themes that PM's interested in. You can interrogate all of the other 200 earnings calls for. might be flows at the moment. Maybe it's always flows, but if it's asset management, it might be flows. If it's something else, and you can interrogate for that so you can understand the picture around the stock you really care about. Even where it's a discretionary process, we think technology can help make the PM smarter by letting them focus on the stuff they're really good at and having the other stuff done for them. But you can also then, using that same sentiment indicator stuff, you can build a long short portfolio without needing a human at all. Thinking about the application of technology and how you build it and use it to generate alpha, how do you think about that with the backdrop of the past few years in markets as there's been more retail participation 
And with that retail participation has come the unpredictability of human behavior coupled with platforms and online communities that have created some of that unpredictability of human behavior, things like Reddit, Robinhood, et cetera. Part of my thing is individual human behavior is hard to predict. Uh, I would get in trouble with this, but uh, I've been married 35 years. I love my wife very dearly. She happens to be out in Japan at the moment. When I call her, I don't know what reaction I'm going to get. I mean, after all this time, she's doing something, I'm doing something. You don't quite know whether you get the right moment, the wrong moment, whatever. But that's one-on-one interaction. Humans are quite unpredictable. As they get into bigger and bigger groups, then things rhyme. They're not exactly the same, but they rhyme. So if you take the whole question about the meme stocks and Reddit and so on and so forth, that started as a good old-fashioned short squeeze. And if you happen to be short a company where you've got whatever it was, 80% open, I think actually above 100% open interest on the shorts, well, you're subject to a short squeeze. And it got organized in a different way, but it wasn't very different than the way it would have been organized 30 years ago or 50 years ago. Squeezes have happened if you're short something that you're always at risk of getting squeezed and people got squeezed. I think that after that, and you get into some interesting stuff about reflexivity, the sort of Soros idea of the fact that, look, I I don't think it's too controversial, but maybe it is to say at the beginning of all of this, AMC almost certainly was going bust. And the theoretical idea of being short it wasn't that stupid. The amount of short that was stupid But then as the meme process drove the share price up and the company raised more capital at higher valuations, suddenly they took something which was bankrupt and turned it into something else. And now we'll see whether they do a good or a bad job of running the company going forward. But those ideas have always existed in markets. Wall Street bets and Reddit, that's new. And particularly the type of language they use on that. But for us, certainly, it took a matter of a few days. As soon as you realize there's stuff going on on there, and then it's like, okay, how do we... I was introduced to it by my son, who's 27. It's like, are you reading this? It's like, no. And then I read it, and I'm like, okay, help. I don't understand it. But the natural language processing stuff found it easy to understand a diamond hands and a rocket it may look weird to me, but it's a set of data in the same way as words are data. And we were able to interpret what's going on in those communities and then manage around that. People are always saying to me, well, it's different this time. You and I have never lived through a pandemic before. I mean, Mega One, the last one was before we were all alive. People always say that the markets were different and you couldn't possibly have used a model for that. They actually weren't different. The sort of causes of movements, the headline that Bloomberg writes to go with the causes of movement might have been different. But in the end, 
the behavior is made up of a series of humans and they tend to build on each other and create moves. And one of the things we love is trends and the retail crowd behavior is classic trend creating behavior. Talking about trends, retail crowd behavior and the trend of more retail participation in markets to some extent was driven by technology, but it was also driven by a raging bull market and markets going up. Now that that party to some extent has stopped, or at least it's gotten more volatile and choppy. So you see now the trend is less participation from retail investors, and it's reflected in the neo brokers, both in equities and crypto. The Robinhood's coin bases of the world are seeing more depressed volumes as a result. In a market like current environment, how important do you believe active investment management is from professionals versus? individual retail investors trying to play this game themselves. So I think the key in that sentence is the word game. You can play around in markets as a game, but then it's the equivalent of gambling for fun. I know people who like to take a thousand bucks and go to a casino and expect to come out every night with none of it, but they enjoy the buzz of it and that's what they get a kick out of. And okay, you could do that, but that's not investing and it's not creating savings and wealth. Does the investing and creation of savings and wealth need to be done by professionals? No, many professionals are not that good at it and some individuals can be very good at it. Do I think that over time, buying one-day call options is a long-term compounding way of increasing savings? No, I don't. The amount of transactions costs you're paying away in that will kill you in time. We'll all find the example of the person who makes a fortune out of it. It's always one of those things you forget. If you have 100,000 people who are doing something and there's absolutely randomness in it. Whereas 10,000 people, if they toss heads and tails every year, there'll be like five of them after 10 years who have a perfect track record. And with 100,000, it'll be more. The point is you can always find the example of somebody who with no skill and even with a negative drift, somebody will make a load of money out of it. I'm not one of these people who thinks it's a bad idea for people to do retail investing. And you can be an active trader if you've got time and you can be a long-term investor if you can do the Buffett thing, you can do the, whatever, the Citadel thing at the other end of the spectrum. They're all possible as long as you have the ability to commit the time and resources to do the thing you're doing. Imagine you can intraday, day trade, sitting at home with a simple piece of software, you are just going to get eaten up because you're competing against people who've got, pick a fight with a little person, not with a big person. On that point, I think what you're getting at to some extent is that markets have been gamified. How do you think as a professional investment manager and an active asset manager, how do you deal with the gamification in financial markets? How do you think about that both from a client perspective and also a business building perspective? From a client perspective, we only want clients who are trying to increase the value of their savings over time. We would rather not take money from somebody 
if we think they're treating it as a game than to take it from them and yeah, they may have a good outcome, they may have a bad outcome, but what we're trying to do is to help the primary school teacher in Texas or Illinois to be able to turn their heating or air conditioning on more often when they retire. I understand what I'm doing when I'm doing that. When I'm providing a gaming platform, I'm not really sure what the utility of the whole thing is, if that makes sense. I think what you're getting at is something really interesting, which is people often forget about the long term at the expense of thinking about the short term or thinking about quicker ways to make money. And gamification plays into that. What you're doing is you're really helping people save and build wealth or more wealth than they had before over a long period of time. How do you think about that concept when it comes to investing? Because it takes a long time to be good at something. It takes a long time to generate consistent returns and build wealth. How do you think about that concept as you think about building business like man and the products and investment offerings that you have on your platform? Yeah, look, this is hard. And if you've got something which has inherently zero barriers to entry, to start investing, to start trading, there were never many barriers. And with the modern technology developments, there are really no barriers to entry to start doing it. Once you get something where there are no barriers, you have to assume that it's super competitive and therefore to generate an edge, which is what alpha is, it's hard. It takes a lot of effort. And so some of that effort is in experience, in the sort of traditional sense of experience, and that helps you in one set of things. Sometimes experience, traditional experience can be overplayed because it will make you miss out on things because you've remembered what can go wrong. And sometimes in markets, it's better to go hard. One of the reasons we like technology and the quant version of life is because you get the compounding of experience without the baggage. We've got models that have been running for 35 years and the world's got a lot more competitive today than it was 35 years ago. 35 years ago, it could be very rough and ready and you made a good return. And today you've got to be near perfect at the implementation of the same idea in order to make a return. But we've got 35 years of hundreds of people's compounded thought process to make us smarter at it. One of the big things in tech stuff is when you have a human process, whatever you've learned today, tomorrow you have to go through 90% of what you did the day before just to make sure it's still up to date. We have to repeat things a lot. In a quant process, if we weren't trying to develop new ideas, we might need 10% of the number of people we have doing it. 90% of the energy goes into new ideas because the existing ones are just managed by the machines. Humans are much better at the beginning than computers, but the speed of compounding of technology is much better than the speed of compounding of humans. That gets you to some interesting, slightly philosophical, meta and scary conversations about what happens when computer 
processing is better than all human processing, but we're heading in that road. It's a question of when, not if, and how does society deal with it? It's a fantastic segue into the next set of questions I want to ask, which really represent the arc of our conversation. To some extent, we talked a lot about technology, but I do think human behavior still matters. And at the end of the day, it is all about people, whether it's technology evaluating humans or humans evaluating humans. So I want to move to some questions about just the human side of things. And you've said some really interesting things recently, have some very interesting philosophies. So I want to make sure we get to those before we end the podcast. The first is actually about the theme of questioning. So you said in a Bloomberg interview recently that the best advice you've gotten is to ask more questions. So take irony in the fact that I'm the one here asking you the questions rather than you. But I want to give you space to share what is your favorite question to ask a portfolio manager or someone in the markets when you want to understand what they're thinking? So I think the most important thing in that is simple questions are a good idea. I was going to say there are no stupid questions, and I don't think there are any stupid questions. There are bad questions, and the bad questions, and you see even professional interviewers doing it, and I see it all the time in analysts, where they ask a question that takes them two minutes to ask the question, leaving the answer to go yes or no. And that's a pointless question. Most people, when they're asking questions, try to make themselves look clever. But that isn't the point of questions. And so I think the simpler questions are better than complicated questions. And professing, not trying to be smart, but here, I think is important. I think the most dangerous thing in finance Maybe it's true in other areas. I don't know. I only know finance really well. The, the most dangerous thing is when people don't ask a question because they don't want to look stupid and they assume they know what the person meant. They assume they know what that was as opposed to asking. And if they were right with their assumption, it doesn't matter. But if they're wrong, it's really, really dangerous. And you see it all the time. So one of the things I do is to ask the simple, dumb, clarifying question all the time. And the number of times you see other people in the room go, oh, thank God somebody asked that because I didn't know, but I didn't want to say it. We use acronyms in this industry so much. We use buzzwords. It's so easy to miss what the implication was. So I think that's one of the important things around questions. Do you find you learn more from open-ended questions? Oh, yes by definition, right? You want people to do the talking. I know you've got me doing all the talking today, but the more somebody does the talking, the more you learn. And also actually the more they enjoy it. It's the same as when conversations with clients, one of the things I tell our salespeople is their job is to talk less than 10% of the meeting. Absolutely. It's such a simple lesson, but such an important lesson, particularly when it comes to sales or connecting with people. And related to that point of connecting with people, you also said recently that your favorite show that you've watched recently is Ted Lasso. Are there any management lessons from Ted that you've brought to your perch at Man? I was on a plane last night and I was like, what am I going to watch to go to sleep? And they had Ted Lasso on the plane. 
And so I watched four episodes as opposed to going to sleep after 15 minutes because I couldn't stop myself. It's a bit cheesy, but in the end, the believe thing, the great thing of the program is in the humor is a lot of actually sensible, good ideas. That's what makes it so nice. One of the ones last night was the first episode and, you know, he puts the wonky sign up that says believe. And it is amazing how much difference it makes to yourself, to a team, to a business, frankly, to a country to believe you can achieve stuff. When you look at the outperformance of the US against any other country, you just come back to there is a self-confidence, there is a belief in the US that people can achieve stuff. Just the belief makes a big difference. So I'll, I'll take that as the simple one. I disagree with them about tea. I think tea is one of the world's great inventions. F fair enough. Man did start out in the commodity space. So that's a very fair answer in that regard. And I, I also agree with you on tea. Uh, one question related to what you just said, that's also related to what we talked about a bit earlier, which is the enduring long-term performance. And that performance isn't built overnight. It takes time and it's about being consistent. You we're also in a fund of hedge funds, so you evaluated managers over periods of time. How do you think about that concept of believe related to ability to sustain long-term performance? Yeah, yeah because <laughs> the biggest danger in finance is hubris. And that's a subject they come back to a lot of times in Ted Lasso. We've all seen people who take believe to the point of cockiness and then blow up. This is where I think culture, again, Okay, maybe I shouldn't keep referring back to Ted, but culture really, really matters because a business, an investment team, any team is made up of a whole load of individuals and understanding what's going on in their lives and understanding how they fit together is incredibly important. The reason team sports are such a fantastic thing to watch just as a, just a pure entertainment factor is because uh, unlike individual sports where it, it's a gladiatorial thing in team sports you can absolutely get combinations of people that work way better than they ought to and you can get combinations of people that should be able to beat everyone and can't do it and the difference between the two things comes down to culture and the way of working together. If there was one thing that I set about and I think of as the legacy of my time running man was about trying to build the right culture. Now, honestly, sort of selfishly, it gets the best out of all the people which is good for the shareholders and good for success and so on. But you don't start with that. I've started by wanting to build a culture where people knew why they were coming to work. It's back to this thing about we're doing it for the end saver and that it had a thing about how you treat each other with respect first and foremost and 
let anybody ask you any question and answer it openly and honestly and start to build a series of things like that that can get you a self-reinforcing positive culture which can get far more out of a team than you can expect as individuals you always have to be very careful of slipping back so the bad actor it is terribly corrosive in a team and i have an absolutely zero tolerance for the bad actor behavior because of the fact that if one person does it other people see them doing it and getting away with it and then it spreads and then you lose the power of the team and you could see it happen in sports teams all the time where they had what looked like a great culture and then one wrong bit of letting somebody behave in one way and it breaks down. When you evaluated hedge fund managers and now you have these different businesses at man, are there certain things you look for or questions you ask to uncover whether or not the people running those teams or businesses will not tolerate that? Yeah. It's like a bit nervous to say some of these things out loud on here, which will then get affected in the future. But we never hire anybody without finding out how they treated the assistants and the door people on the way into man. And in looking at buying a business, we spend time to see how they treat their assistants, all of those things which show disrespect for somebody else doing their best are real red flag signs, in my view. Even when you just turn up to meet with a, how does the PM treat the salesperson in the meeting? Because there's almost always both. And that tells you a lot. How do they get information? Or does somebody say, no, I'm not going to give you that. That stuff tells you a lot about the culture. And it's better to walk away if there are, signs of rust it's a great point and on the human side great place to end i do want to end this podcast asking a question that i ask everyone who comes on the podcast which is what is your most interesting or favorite alternative investment that's an impossible question because i want to say some wonderful man product and then i'll get in massive trouble from compliance so i can't say that So then I will tell you the thing I've made a lot of money out of. So you could call it an investment, but that's not why I do it, which is a great red Burgundy wine. The mark-to-market on the wine I own is very hard to compete with, apart from the fact that it's a decaying asset because I keep drinking it. That was exactly where I was going to go next was how do you balance holding it so that it appreciates in value because presumably somebody would end up drinking it and it would have some scarcity value versus the value of enjoying it. (laughs) Yep. Well, so I, I try to make myself drink it at purchase price rather than at mark to market price, but it doesn't always work. Well, maybe there is an interesting investment strategy in that if you buy enough of that wine and you drink enough of it and you've owned enough of the market share of the wine, then the remaining bottles that you keep and don't drink should potentially go up in value. Yeah, yeah. It's a sort of theory that works exactly like that. But if you're ever buying wine as an investment, it's not about 
the score some random whatever person gives it. The trick is the ones, it's a supply-demand thing. The more that when you pour it for somebody, they drink it, the more likely it is to get scarce in the future. People like to invest in these really big, powerful wines, which you can only drink a tiny amount of before you're overpowered. Whereas if you have a nice burgundy, everybody empties their glass in seconds and wants more. And you could go through large amounts in an evening. And so therefore it disappears over time. There must be an investment strategy lesson in there. There must be. I'm sure there is an investment strategy in there, but I enjoy drinking wine. So I keep it separate. I have to ask this question because I think it's so fascinating to hear somebody who's so steeped in technology focused investing and quantitative focused investing also be fascinated and care about passion investing. And I think that actually really spans the alt space. We think about the alt space, there's everything from equities and private companies all the way to, I call them alt alts. So passion investments, it could be wine, it could be sports cards, it could be cars. How do you think about the span of alts when you think about passion investing? And is that something that goes mainstream in your mind over time as well? I don't think it goes. I mean, depending on your definition of mainstream, I don't think that things like wine and sports cars, they can, for any individual person, be an incredibly important part of their portfolio, maybe a dominant part of their portfolio, but you just can't do the volume. And so wine is a good example. At an individual level, even at a small family office level, you can do a smart thing with wine. If you're running a $10 billion pension plan, the only wine you could buy in a size that makes any potential difference is exactly the sort of stuff that the supply-demand characteristics mean the price never goes up. If we finish on one thing, because it gets to this bit that you can't make an illiquid asset liquid. You can't make a scarce asset available to everybody. There are some things you can't do. Some alternative assets are liquid. Some alternative assets are illiquid. I think people should understand the liquidity of what they're investing in. Sometimes you can do it with a lot of money and sometimes you can only do it. There's just one or two opportunities and the fact somebody made money out of it doesn't mean you could have done something. It's a fantastic place to end because I think the point of illiquidity is so important when it comes to alternative investments and understanding that concept, so incredibly important. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's a fantastic place to end. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast as well. And I'm glad that we were able to ask you questions because it was fascinating to hear your answers. Brilliant. Michael, thanks so much for the very entertaining chat. Likewise. Thanks so much, Luke. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at Goes Alt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.